Hello, welcome to the Sound Architects interview with Leonard Paul, the man behind the School of Video Game Audio. Let's start by talking a little bit about what exactly the School of Video Game Audio is and how it came to be. Yeah, so I have been in video game audio since 1994, uh, working at Electronic Arts, and I started out being a programmer. And I went through the 90s sort of uh, transitioning from being a programmer to doing more game audio content. And uh, at the start of sort of the just after 2000, I think it was 2001 or so, um, I uh, submitted a, a paper to present at, uh, at GDC, so the Game Developer Conference, and uh, it was accepted. And uh, I spoke there and uh, yeah, I had some really great feedback on like, you know, people really wanting to get into game audio and learning more about it. And, um, you know, that was sort of the, the initial uh, sort of uh, my start into the educational side of game audio. I was still programming and doing sound design and stuff like that at uh, various game companies here in, in Vancouver. And then uh, in 2003, I gave uh, another presentation and um, pretty soon, like, and that was at GDC. And pretty soon after that, I was working at the Vancouver Film School and I continued to give uh, presentations. And the common question was like, well, how do I learn more about uh, video game audio? And although the film school was a great place to learn and it still is, uh, it's also quite expensive. And I found that um, the, the issue that I really ran into was that uh, there was a lot of schools that were interested in teaching it, but often they wouldn't have somebody that was great at, um, you know, necessarily teaching. So you have that sort of where you have somebody in from the industry, but they don't necessarily know how to teach. Or sometimes uh, they would, you know, know how to, you know, teach, but they wouldn't necessarily have industry experience. So um, I feel like I combined those together fairly well. And uh, once I finished up at the Vancouver Film School, I continued to do games, but education was always something I was really interested in. And then when talking with a friend of mine, we basically put together the idea of a school and in uh, 2012 uh, started first classes. And basically it's been going uh, really well ever since. And we've had about 21 or so uh, terms, like different classes of people come through in the past like three years or so from 35 different countries and like hundreds of people. So yeah, it's been kind of a blur and lots of fun. And it's great to see, you know, where students are coming from and where they're going to and stuff. So really the, the, the overall uh, goal with the school is to really help people from different parts of the world have access to, you know, really good um, information about how they can learn uh, what they need to for game audio so that they can make their own games and really represent their own cultures in their games. So that's why I want to make the school accessible and online. And uh, I try and make it so that it fits into people's busy schedules. So yeah, and I also do, uh, it's, it focuses a lot on mentorship. So people ask questions. 
and I basically answer all the questions that people have about game audio. So it's really sort of a uh, an interactive process, <laughs> similar to video games. It's a back and forth, and so yeah, I really want to uh, engage with people and, and help them uh, sort of see where they're at. Because some people that join in, they're taking the course for professional development. So I have even some people that teach at universities uh, come through the program, and there's still a lot to learn uh, within the sort of default two months. And uh, I really just sort of figure out, yeah, what, where the person's at and where they want to go in game audio. So I feel that that's a really good strength of the course. It's not just like a set of videos and you do like, you know, a multiple choice. I mean, you do that in the course, but the strength of our course is really uh, sort of a very hands-on approach where you work directly on a game and you see exactly uh, how everything works all the way down from the code up to, you know, your high level designs of, you know, the way you want the, uh, all the music and sound design and, uh, you know, speech to come together in the video game. So, yeah, I mean, the, the idea with the school is really just to, to help people out and, uh, increase the, uh, sort of the, the artistry of, uh, game audio as an art form, uh, you know, on a, hopefully a worldwide scale. Yeah, it sounds like a really good support network for anyone looking at that. Who do you think is the sort of most popular kind of person, like students or professionals, or is it just a big mix? Yeah, it's a big mix. Um, so as far as the people coming into the school, we have a wide range of different people, um, all the way from people that have just graduated high school. I even had um, one person asking for his son that was still in school, like in, uh, you know, in high school. But usually we have people that have finished high school all the way up to yeah, professionals that have been working in the industry for years and years. And they're just looking to, say, polish up on learning a little bit of WISE or F or you know getting started with sort of new stuff in pure data or with uh, with unity so we have a very wide range of people coming through um, the but the majority of people are um, you know, audio folks that have been in, uh, you know, doing audio for a while. So either they've taken a fairly significant, like four year course, uh, in audio. So usually it's audio for film or sometimes say, you know, for visual media, just in general. And they're looking to really focus on game audio as another tool that they can add to their uh, sort of skill set. So usually it's uh, it's people that have a pretty uh, strong uh, game audio foundation and then are looking to yeah expand their their possibilities into uh, the game audio industry or just even refine the skills that they already have in game audio. So that's actually true. So we have. Uh, some people that are been working a lot in indie games and then they're like, yeah, I've been like submitting a lot of assets, but I don't ever get to do like the implementation side of things. And I really want to do that. So we help people like that as well uh, to to learn implementation so that they can really take control of their game audio design in independent or even like sort of small scale games. Super. Um, which of your courses do you think is most popular at the moment? Okay, I'll, I guess I'll turn the question around and say that really what we do with the school is that we try to reflect the industry. 
one of the best ways of finding out what's popular in the industry is the game audio survey that uh, Brian Schmidt put out. Yeah, it's uh, a really seen? good one. Yeah. Yeah. So what we do is we sort of look at that and we sort of, when people are coming to the school and they're asking like, oh, which course should I take first? At this point, usually I just refer to that document and I'm like, okay, do you want to work in indie games, like smaller games, or do you want to work on AAA titles? And then from there, we'll sort of make a decision uh, based on really what it looks like the industry is is doing at the current time so we try to make our course uh you know like our decision on what would be best for the student sort of uh, it sort of changes with with every year but uh overall yeah usually we recommend for people to start with uh wise um we find that the documentation is quite uh, extensive and uh, it's just a it's a very good sort of overall program to learn because um, it's uh, the skills that you learn in WISE are kind of applicable to, to almost everything else. And uh, then we go from there. FMOD Studio is really good for people that are, you know, that have more of a DAW based approach and say they're coming at game audio from, uh, say, like a Ableton Live kind of background. And so I find that, you know, people that are interested in uh, sort of extending uh, their knowledge from sort of audio production into video games, sometimes they prefer FMOD Studio just because the visual layout. So it really depends on the student. And then if we have people that are interested in doing scripting, then we recommend the Unity course. And for people that want to learn the visual scripting languages, <laughs> they, uh, that they use Electronic Arts. So they use Frostbite, which is sort of a visual-based uh, scripting language, as well as AMP at, uh, at Rockstar Games, then uh, Pure Data is sort of the course that we would suggest. So... But as far as the most popular one, yeah, we, we try to follow the industry. And probably the easiest thing is to just look at our uh, student uh, demo reels online. And then you can see the, just the, you know, the programs that people are using in the past, too. So, I mean, that's sort of a good indicator. Yeah, that sounds good. Um, we talked about this a little bit, but I want to come back to it and say what led you to cross from working just in the industry to then going into the education sector. Yeah, there's a few different things. Um, I guess part of it is that I kind of wanted to take control of my schedule uh, on a personal level. <laughs> so working in games, uh, I've done it a long time. <laughs> yeah. It's quite a grueling process year in, year out. Um, one of the biggest things that I found that I missed that it might sound kind of funny, but I mean, we we're talking about the weather earlier, but in Vancouver, like in Canada, we don't get necessarily like, you know, year round sun here <laughs> being like in the Northern hemisphere. So, um, the thing that I found was really difficult was when I was working at electronic arts, they had all of their games there. This was the Burnaby studio. And so there are games focused on sports games that are Christmas release. So, sort of the crunch time was always during summer so what happened was that I found myself kind of I'm I really do love the sun and so I found myself being kind of trapped downstairs you know like in a darkened room uh air-conditioned and having no idea like I actually would run a webcam to the outside to see what the weather was because <laughs> you know when you're working in an audio studio a lot of the times you can't see outside just because you know you want to have noise isolation right yeah. So um, I think that that was, it sounds a bit funny, but that was one of my 
things is that I really wanted to enjoy my summers and to have uh, flexibility over when I was working and uh, when I wasn't. Um, I also found that working in production, I just find that you can get into a certain uh, headset of just sort of producing stuff, sort of, and you can feel like you're kind of getting stuck in your own uh, artistic process uh, sometimes. And also a large part of the job is also political too, which, uh, you know, for people that are good at it, that's fine. But I found that for me, that was, you know, it's a, it's a part of the job that I just didn't feel like I needed to do for years and years. And so it was kind of nice to step out into education and then just really have a one-on-one relationship and experience with students. And then that way, you know, I feel like I'm growing more as a person because I, I really, it's a, it's a two way street. Like, you know, people can learn a lot from me, but I also learn a lot from other people. And the thing that I'm continuously reminded of for, you know, for people that are coming through the school is that they're super stoked. Like they're very excited about game audio. And so for me, I can't help, but also be excited as well. And always try to find new things that I can learn about game audio and, uh, yeah, so I find that doing education really helps keep things fresh as well. So there's that. Um, I mean, there's a lot of different reasons. But I would say, yeah, the overarching reason for me to start the school was really uh, to help spread the knowledge that I have and to really sort of work within the skills that I feel like I have and, and what I can really bring to the community as a whole. So. Um, yeah, if I was working like in production, I would be making many times what I'm making right now off the school. So for me, I, I really, um, I want to help, uh, people out. And I also obviously want to help myself as well, just to, to have a sort of a more kind of like relaxed schedule and stuff. So, but I still really love working in games. <laughs> so that's the reason why I'm working on Retro City Rampage. And I might pick up other projects as well. So, yeah, education is great for giving me a sort of a, uh, uh, a good lifestyle and to keep me fresh. And also just to yeah, allow me to uh, meet all sorts of amazing people, like with, with my travels uh, when I do lecturing on game audio. And then working in games, like working in independent games, uh, just working in smaller games allows me the flexibility of schedule. And then also just the creative control as well, which I find is really important for me. I really, I want to try out something new. And uh, when working in a larger studio, they often don't really want to do that because it's too risky. And uh, and yeah, sometimes you feel like you're fighting the system, whereas with independent games, things tend to be a little bit more fresh and loose and sort of, you know, not everything goes, but you can definitely, you have more latitude to try out more sort of artistic or sort of different things that might be more of a technical risk at a larger studio. So I really like that sort of balance of, of yeah, like trying out uh, new things and uh, on the creative and the technical side with uh, with video games. Sure. Would you say you prefer working in, on, in independent games rather than larger titles? Yeah, that's interesting. Independent games versus uh, AAA titles. I guess there's stuff to learn from both. They, um, I guess, well, <laughs> the one of the nice things about working with AAA is that you kind of know that the 
you know, unless the game gets canceled, you kind of know that the game will get out and people will play it. <laughs> whereas, sure, of course. <laughs> exactly. Whereas when you're working with independent games, uh, it, it can feel like, you know, you're working on something and you can put a lot of effort into something and, uh, and it just doesn't go anywhere. You know, it's just, you know, there's just not the same marketing budget. So sometimes uh, from a I don't know, from an artistic standpoint of trying to have your artwork reach a large audience, working in AAA is cool, but it's also often watered down by the fact that, you know, from an from an artistic perspective is that you're just you're just part of the team and you can be quite a small part of the team. So you can't necessarily say like, you know, like I did all of the sound design. You might be one out of, you know, three or four people or something that are contributing sounds towards the game. And uh, so sometimes, yeah, taking like that kind of you know, full ownership is, uh, it's a lot easier on independent titles because you're just like, Hey, <laughs> I did all the audio, <laughs> like everything. So that, that is, uh, is a, uh, sort of a fun thing with, uh, working with independent games versus like, uh, AAA titles, but the AAA titles, the neat thing is that it's kind of like similar to like James Bond and like, you know, Q you like, you get the, you get the gadgets, you get the fun stuff to work with. So they have some amazing tools like Electronic Arts and other larger game studios that you just, it really is being like, you know, like James Bond, like the, unless you're in the studio, they're totally, you know, like when you're on the outside, you just don't know. But when you're on the inside, you're just like, Oh my God, goodness like look at all of these cool toys and you get so much support and you can learn a lot from the people that are working there so if you have a problem usually there's somebody within the company that can help out so that's that's the sort of downside of uh, independent games is that sometimes you can feel like a little bit like you're on your own so if you run into a problem yeah it can be difficult but the neat thing these days is you know uh we've got uh twitter facebook you know whatever else uh you can use like email lists that kind of thing to uh sort of, to sort of reach out to your community and get help so i think that that's a, a way of overcoming that but yeah triple a stuff it's uh it's it can really be about working with really cool new tools that are really not available anywhere else sounds awesome um out of all the projects that you've worked on what would be your favorite and why <laughs> <laughs> uh, you might have a lot to choose from <laughs> yeah i know it's that but it's more like i think the uh what is it the favorite term is that it's like picking between one's children you know yeah <laughs> that it's uh it's tricky to say um they, they've all added to sort of who i am creatively so uh even for the ones that were difficult for me uh, I wouldn't have, you know, if I could change things, I, I wouldn't. I, you know, they're a part of who I am and part of the way that I do things. Yeah, my favorite currently, I guess, is is just Retro City Rampage. I mean, that's the game that I'm really the closest to. Um, I'm the audio director for that, and so um, yeah, working with Brian has been a great experience. And we worked on that game for years. Um, I printed a, a vinyl. Uh, run of the soundtrack that was a great accomplishment um i yeah self-funded that i did like a huge part of that process and it was very interesting because at that point in my life i didn't have a lot of money so um the at one point the records were actually we pressed them down in the states because uh, we wanted to have really good quality and the problem was that I, I really ran out of money personally. So I had enough money to fund the pressing, but then I didn't have enough money to ship them up to Vancouver. Oh, no. 
<laughs> so what I did was, uh, I, they were starting to call me and they're just like, okay, we're going to like, you know, charge you extra because it's like, you know, we basically only allow the stuff to stay in the warehouse for so long. So we're going to ding you extra. I'm like, no, 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 no. So I had to basically scrape together some cash and get it sent up here. But yeah, it, it's those kind of experiences that where you're really taking a financial risk and also a creative risk too, because I had never done, uh, you know, pressed vinyl. It's a pretty demanding process. And uh, so, yeah, it was exciting. And then it was received really well. Um, we had 500 copies and they sold out basically within two months. And uh, so it was really a great success. And the soundtrack did really well for Retro City Rampage. So, yeah, I feel I feel really um, you know proud of that process, and uh, it really felt like it was something special. It was really neat to work with uh, you know like a new game and a new you know sort of intellectual property kind of thing, and just everything felt really fresh. And this was right at sort of you know the same time as like Super Meat Boy and Fez and all that kind of stuff. You know, sort of uh, just the 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 beginnings of kind of like this, uh, you know, indie kind of movement that we have now where you've got, you know, Xbox live, uh, PlayStation network. Um, and then also like Nintendo has online stuff as well. Like the, like it's the Nintendo shop. I can't remember what the name is, but, uh, anyways, there's, there's so many opportunities for indie games and it was neat to, uh, just be part of that. And to, yeah, I feel like it was a success. Awesome. And if you had to choose your favorite game that you've played for its use of audio, what would that be and why? Yeah, that's uh, it's kind of funny because these days I don't have a lot of time to play games. Um, so I'm not much of a gamer. Um, gee, if and I guess it's also kind of strange, too, because I. Um, uh, with the, the latest Retro City Rampage project, <clears throat> I'm not really listening to a lot of modern games. So if I had to pick like right now, I would say that the Streets of Rage series yeah. <laughs> is, is probably the series that I, uh, the, you know, set of games anyways, that I, I really am enjoying for audio. Uh, so Streets of Rage, especially like Streets of Rage, uh, like two and three, um, and even the first one, like they're all really well done uh, and have great sounds for the Sega Genesis. And so with sort of going uh, from the 8-bit to more of the 16-bit kind of era, that there's some really amazing ideas there. And some of the songs are kind of, you know, they're very close approximations of like songs from the 90s, like dance floor, sort of, you know, like, I don't know, technotronic and stuff like that. But uh, they have their own really interesting sort of Japanese interpretation to them. And uh, there's some amazing um, uh, work that uh, Yuzo, yeah, Yuzo that he put in, to his uh, compositions for Street Charades. He has this, uh, that's one thing that uh, it was called automated composition. And it's basically so that every time the song plays, it actually plays slightly differently. So what he was doing way back in the 90s was figuring out little phrases and little sort of mathematical routines that would uh, combine and change 
the note patterns of the songs so that they would actually kind of not really play exactly the same way twice. So for me, working within uh, like um, newer things like SimCell and uh, even with the Beep documentary is that I'm working a lot with uh, generative music. So that stuff for me is really exciting. So it's sort of it's a cross uh, between my interest in generative music and also in sort of that 16 bit sort of FM slash kind of like uh, just when samples were getting started, like on cartridges and stuff like that kind of era. So. Yeah, I'm I'm really enjoying uh, Streets of Rage these days for the audio. Yeah, it's definitely cool. It's an interesting thing as well about a lot of people favour the sort of older titles when they think of a favourite. And <laughs> in the Beep Game Audio documentary, a lot of the people in Japan who were interviewed weren't really a fan of the new epic orchestral sound and were saying that it was getting boring. Yeah. I'm I'm interested in, as a composer, I'm interested in working with small ensembles, I guess. Um, and also I really like, uh, Jason Gray's work, um, yeah. like with working with sort of, uh, stochastic kind of processes for working with like traditional, uh, instrumentation. So for me, if I had money, <laughs> like, uh, then I would be really interested in working in a similar manner of, of sort of like extended techniques and stuff like that with, uh, traditional orchestral instruments, but probably in a smaller sort of like chamber music kind of, uh, scale, so, yeah, I find that the orchestral stuff, um, I guess part of it is that it's uh, it tends to be a little bit e exclusionary. Like it, um, you have to have a fair amount of money to, for me anyways, to, to really do orchestral properly. Like obviously there's people that are really good at doing amazing mock-ups. But even with that, you still have to have like a few thousand dollars plus of like sample libraries. Plus you have to have the experience and that kind of stuff. It's not really something that you can just sort of step into. Whereas for, say, the more classic stuff, uh, there, you know, people just needed to have a real interest and a focus on creating something um, that sounded good and like there was definitely like a hurdle on the technical side of learning how to do assembly language programming or something like that way back in the day. But, uh, yeah, the orchestral sort of, uh, phase has been interesting, but, um, yeah, I find that it tends to, it can make things sort of wash over because it's, it's this huge sound. And, uh, sometimes I really just, like stripping things down to melody. And that's the reason why I loved working on Retro City Rampage is that you've basically got two pulse waves, triangle wave, a noise channel, and then maybe a little crappy sampled sound channel. And you have to make something that sounds good uh, using uh, that sort of sound palette or like those as instruments. And uh, I like that kind of challenge. I find that working with, you know, I have, you know, whatever like orchestral samples and stuff. And I find that when working, even just uh, say like I did uh, like a little bit of strings and stuff on the, uh, the teaser music for the beep documentary. And I found that even working with that is that I would, I would compose stuff and I'm like, ah, it's just, it sounds kind of like it, it, it just needs to be, it needs to have more focus and it needs to be sort of sharper. So I sort of would strip out layers to make it. So I'd be like, oh, I don't really need to have like, you know, double bass and cello here. I can just do it with double bass and leave a big gap and then just do violins, you know, and then maybe a little bit of viola or something. So yeah, I, uh, I like 
I like trying to be minimal. <laughs> so yeah. orchestral stuff is is great, and I really you know applaud people that are good at it. But I also think that it's it's not necessarily the case that it's better if you're an orchestral composer versus like say a chiptune composer. I think that both really have their merits, and I think there's. Uh, you know, there's, um, it's just sort of a, a stylistic thing. If you, uh, want to approach things more on a textural level, then, you know, orchestral can be really good. But if you want to work sort of melodic and really strip things down, then, you know, chiptune is, it really forces you into that. So, yeah, I would say that balancing the two is kind of interesting. And that's actually sort of my approach with the, uh, with the beep documentary music is that at least the, the teaser music is that I'm sort of exploring that, um, that balance. Yeah, that's a good, there's sort of very different sets of skills and kind of combining them is an interesting way of dealing with that. Yeah. And it just sort of reflects, uh, the sort of, you know, the looking forward, looking back kind of feeling of game audio where, um, you know, back, you know, in the days we would be stuck doing sort of that chip, you know, based music. Whereas now we have the possibility of having full orchestral, but we've sort of, uh, I guess it's sort of a postmodern kind of conundrum where it's just like, now that we have everything accessible to us, what do we choose? Like what really suits the game the best? And I think that that's really what it comes down to is that, you know, if you have a game where orchestral music is the way to go and would support the design of the game the best, then that's definitely, uh, you know, a great choice. But it's also not the only choice. Like, that's the thing that Nintendo has done really well is that, you know, even on the, the Wii and the Wii U platform, is that it, they still sort of, to make things more... Um, to make it so that the music is more malleable and more interactive and adaptive is that there's sort of midi ish sounding stuff in there. And that's, it's, it's an interesting approach. Whereas you could do that uh, orchestrally and have that kind of a sound and still have it adaptive, but sometimes it's just the aesthetic of the game and the design of the game that just suits more of a sort of like midi based kind of sound approach. And like, and that's okay. It doesn't mean that there's any sort of, I don't know. I just feel like there there shouldn't be so much of a uh, a value judgment, I guess, that one is better than the other. To me, game audio is really about supporting the design of the overall experience. Yeah, sure. And different things are going to suit different games. You can't apply chiptune to Call of Duty necessarily. <laughs> no, that that would be odd. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would be strange. But the thing is that with Call of Duty, that you could um, like looking at say like other you know whatever um i guess you'd say like war-based dramas or movies is that there's a large range of things that you could do from yeah like small ensemble stuff but you could also have a very unsettling kind of like synth score if uh you know if you wanted to i mean that that could work in certain areas but then blend that with you know orchestral stuff i mean it's it's kind of difficult maybe to go against the grain totally like say with a, a very established like IP like uh, Call of Duty but you could definitely bend things in there and sort of throw the occasional like uh, owned Martineau or something like that underneath there and kind of go like yeah there's there's some interesting sort of different textures that you could apply to this uh, to this genre and sort of bend it in different ways that could be just to keep things fresh yeah I think they do that quite well because Trent Reznor from Nine Inch Nails did Black Ops 2 so I mm -hmm. guess that kind of pushes that in a little bit there 
Exactly. And like, yeah, he is definitely uh, very good at exploring new things. And I remember my friend way back in the early 90s, who was totally about like pretty hate machine. And so we listened to that cassette, <laughs> like yeah, wow. basically on auto auto repeat where, you know, it hits the end of the tape and then ka-chink, and then it plays the other side. <laughs> like, so yeah, that, that is definitely like a, a, a very uh, influential work for me. And I think uh, he worked on like uh, Trent Reznor at that point. Uh, he was working on the Emacs, which it's, it's interesting because that particular sampler has a very limited uh, sort of sample memory. So when you listen to that album, it can kind of, it sounds very much of the time. And so it's it's got a, for me, an interesting sort of reflection into video games. And like, obviously he, he composed music for uh, Quake way back in the day as well. So yeah, he's, he's a very interesting uh, person to sort of bridge sort of like, you know, sort of that industrial side of things with like film scoring you know with the you know social network and then like gone girl and then like yeah like <laughs> like you know modern video games like you're saying yeah he's an incredible guy <laughs> yeah he is he's definitely an inspiration um have you got any advice to offer anyone looking to get into the game audio industry like what would you say to them Okay, for me, that's a very difficult question not to answer to to sort of say like, well, you should join our school. Um, the you know, I mean, that's part of the reason why I did it is because the the answer to sort of how someone can improve their skills in game audio or you know break into the industry is a it's a really long answer, and it kind of requires uh, I think a fairly personal answer too. Um, but if I were to give some general hints on getting started that didn't include, you know, joining the school, um, then I would say one of the biggest things for me is uh, is to 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 tell people to like to basically research, to really find out about what games you like, what you know titles you want to work on, uh, where you want to work, what studios you would like to work for, you know, who is inspiring to you uh, as a composer, sound designer in uh, game audio, and really dig into that. And so I feel that uh, working, or sorry, like, I feel that looking for a job in game audio is a full-time job in itself. And so I would approach it like that. Um, that's what I did when I was a, uh, a contractor and that's what I'm doing, you know, often on these days. Uh, but when looking for work, it really is a job on its own. So really, you know, being very disciplined about it, sitting down for, you know, eight ish hours a day and really, uh, researching on the internet is great. Uh, and that's sort of a first step. Uh, the next step, once you have a better idea of what you want to do, would be to uh, sort of reach out and uh, sort of do sort of uh, first-person research. So you know, like, um, you know, ask people questions on Reddit. Uh, you can ask people questions on Twitter. Um, you know, you can you can go to um, local meetups. So IGDA meetings are great for that. Um, there's like uh, indie meetups all over the place for, you know, for different like game jams are a great thing to do. You can 
do those online as well. You don't necessarily need to be there in person. But if you're able to uh, start locally, I think that that's a good approach. And then basically just talking to as many people as you can and getting as much information as you can. Uh, because sometimes people's perception of what game audio is, uh, you know, it, it, well, I would say that people's perception of game audio will change over time. It just happens. So the more research you do, the more information you have, the better, uh, you know, sort of ideas you'll have between the way uh, the industry works and the way that you can fit into it. So the more information you have, the better. Talking to people is great. Networking, super important. You know, be a nice person, uh, be engaged, learn online as much as you can. Like there's lots of YouTube videos. There's like the WISE uh, certification that you can do for free. There's um, there's like the sample project that WISE has available. There's also the WISE project adventure uh, that's available too. That's like a great tutorial for people to go through. Uh, on the FMOD Studio side, There's they have a whole bunch of videos. They also have uh, Earth Warrior 3D as a project that you can download and try out and put your own audio into. Um, as far as Unity, they have a lot of videos. <laughs> there's tons of videos out there for Unity. And then for Pure Data, there's a great uh, tutorial series on learning Pure Data. And uh, there's lots of resources there as well. There's like manuals and just trying out people's patches and uh, experimenting with things, breaking things, creating things and trying to figure out, yeah, like how to stay inspired, figuring out what where your place in game audio is, because when uh, sort of taking the next step, say, like after you've done sort of local stuff, then, you know, going to the game developer conference is another great step to sort of meet a lot of you know, people that are the movers and shakers and game audio, but then also the people that are part of companies as well. So um, it's really good to figure out what you can, uh, you know, basically present uh, to people as how you can help them rather than sort of turning it around and going like, oh, like I'm looking for a job, you know, like, can you help me get a job? It's more like I already know know like how to do uh adapted music and wise uh i've worked on a few like you know smaller indie games and stuff like that and so these are my skills right now and what i want to do at a company is i want to you know continue to work in adapted music you know with a tool that is of a similar level to wise and for people that are working in the industry they could just be like oh man we totally have a project coming up you know like it's not posted yet but i'll definitely let you know because it sounds like you already know what you're doing and so it'd be great to bring you in or do a telephone interview or skype interview or something like that and so it's it's figuring out what you can you know sort of uh present uh as uh, as attractive skills to the industry and that's why with my school that i really focus on the demo reel because that's kind of like your calling card that's how you can easily say to somebody and like you know that you're bumping into for two minutes or something to say like yeah i'm really interested in doing stuff like this and to see you know what i am capable of here's my demo reel and awesome you know i can see that you're going to the next session <laughs> you know it's kind of like the elevator pitch of game audio it's uh it's important to have that calling card to have a website and and uh, yeah, to sort of have a online presence, it's good to uh, have a LinkedIn, you know, that kind of stuff. And uh, yeah, I don't know. It's basically just sort of continuing from there. And then also knowing that you don't really need to force things like, 
for me, I just like meeting new people and, and talking and finding out, you know, you might be just sort of whatever, like hanging out at one of the, uh, I don't know, say at a local meetup or something like that. And then you just end up chatting to someone and then it turns out that, I don't know, whatever. Yeah. You both really like Trent Reznor, you know, (laughs) like you strike up a conversation there and then that kind of like, you know, that kind of connection It just means that, you know, like, even though that person might be, maybe they're an art director or something, but they really like Trent Reznor, but maybe like months down the road, they're like, oh, hey, like, I'm, I'm not working at that studio anymore, but like, I'm starting out my own independent game. And like, you know, you're totally into this. I'm totally into this. You know, like, we're probably sort of similar people and, you know, love the chance to work with you. So, I mean, that's sort of in a, in a odd way, how I got started with Retro City Rampage is that. I was working at a company called Backbone Entertainment, as well as Brian was working there too, and we're working on different games. But uh, I ended up doing a chiptune show with a friend of mine, and uh, Brian came out and saw that, and he's just like, "Hey, that's awesome! Like, I totally want to have some like chiptune-y type music for my my. I'm doing a little homebrew game, like you know, that's based on sort of the cross between like you know, like if Grand Theft Auto was for the you know the original Nintendo." And I was like, "Yeah, that sounds great." And then things just went from there. And then, yeah, you never really know where uh, you'll get started. So I think the biggest thing is, you know, sort of know where you're at, like, you know, and what your progression will be. And uh, just really try and invite people in to to really meet you and know you. And, uh, yeah, I don't know. It's it's, at the end of the day, I feel like it really is about, like, true connections with people and really – understanding that like we all have something to give and sometimes you know even if you have really good skills uh sometimes you're just not a match for a project and that's fine but when you are that's cool too and so i think it's uh it's important to put yourself out there as much as you can and then you'll find that uh once you sort of get the ball rolling that projects uh yeah that sort of fit who you are will appear more and more regularly so yeah, I don't know. That's that's my long answer, but there is a much longer answer to that that really involves talking directly to people, like all my students, and finding out what they want to do and where they want to go. And uh, yeah, it's a it's a it's a long process, but it's it's really neat to sort of yeah figure out. Um, what people want to sort of get out of game audio and also what they want to give to game audio too. I think the giving part is, is the underline. So yeah. What, yeah. what can you, what can you add to the community? I think is, is really, uh, is really, really important. Awesome. And um, we talked a little bit about the demo reel. How important <laughs> do you think it is to have a really good demo reel and should a composer and sound designer approach them in a different way? It's a bit of a loaded question because I base the whole school around doing a demo reel. So yes, I do feel that a demo reel is really important. Even if I wasn't doing the school, then I would say the same thing. Um, A demo reel um, is a great way to show somebody your skills, not only on the technical side that you understand, like what WISE is and like, you know, what, uh, I don't know, what... Uh, like soundcaster sessions are whatever it is like that you understand how the tool works but then it's the other side and the combination of also knowing that you have good um, creative skills as well so that you're good like you're saying either sort of that split either you're a composer or a sound designer or with independent games you tend to often be both Um, as far as doing a demo reel um, for one or the other Mm, it's it's 
tricky. It's like it depends where you want to apply to. Um, a lot of postings these days will say like, you know, it's like sound artist for video game needs to know like why is this and that needs to have like, you know, one year of experience, blah, 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 blah. And then right at the end, it's just like this is not a composing position. <laughs> right. <laughs> so if if you have a position like that, then you probably want to at least have a demo reel that doesn't entirely focus on your skills as a composer. But it's totally fine to, you know have sound design skills and have like get that role but then to uh to also yeah basically have composition skills as well so it's kind of like um it's like you have your resume or your cv that is all of the skills that you have so say if you're both a composer and a sound designer then that would go on your resume but as a cover letter when you send it into a specific job then you really want to highlight one or the other um, depending on what the role is or maybe both if it's a you know independent game so usually at larger studios you wouldn't necessarily be doing uh, a lot of both that that is pretty rare these days um, usually music is primarily like outsourced um, a lot of the time it's it's becoming more and more rare to be an in-house uh, game composer for a triple-a studio it still does happen but it's much more likely to be a sound designer and also like say what's known as sort of a technical sound artist within a larger game studio so in that case you're not necessarily even creating your own uh, sort of content you're taking other people's content and then putting it into the game using wise or whatever their tool set is so I, I sort of see there's uh, there's a few different roles there. There's like you could also like on the audio side, you might also be a dialogue person. So you might be doing dialogue editing or, um, you know, doing uh, the more technical side of dialogue. So you're figuring out the different dialogue trees and stuff that will play in the game. Um, or you're a sound designer, or you might be doing sort of technical sound design. <clears throat> you might be a recordist. You might be just, you know, going out there and gathering sounds. That's usually farmed out. It's not so much in-house, but more of the technical sound designer role is something that will find you a consistent job at a larger studio. And then as a composer, you might be sort of just doing the uh, just composition and not having to worry about the interactive structure, or you might be more of a technical uh, kind of composer as there's that new website uh, designing music uh, now. Uh, that's uh, that's out there. So that's sort of the uh, similar role to being a technical sound designer is that being a technical composer is where you're taking maybe even pre-existing music and then chopping it up and making it interactive. And uh, say that's the role that I did, uh, part of the role that I did when I was working on Vessel, the video game, is that I took uh, 10 songs from John Hopkins. He's a you know, big composer, you know, electronic music artist in the in the UK. And so I took uh, 10 songs of his and then I got the stems of those and then uh, remixed them. Not, you know, I tried to make the remix as transparent as possible, but then I uh, made it so that those songs would be adaptive in the game. So there's uh, that role. Um, and then you might even be going into like the sort of scripting realm as well. I mean, that's kind of like a technical game audio uh, kind of role, but you could you could get quite technical. And then if you sort of verge like all the way into the technical side, then a game audio programmer is another sort of role as well. And those, uh, I feel that there's a real continuum across there uh, that uh, depending on the size of studio that you're on, usually you'll become sort of more narrowed into one of those. 
uh, at a larger game studio. But I do really think it's important to, I mean, you won't have a, a demo reel as a, well, you might have a demo reel, but you probably won't have a demo reel as a game audio coder. But if you want to show your skills as a technical sound artist, then you would probably, yeah, like include that in a lot of students that I have include their work, uh, you know, their implementation work. Uh, in Wise or in FMOD in their demo reels to show that they really have those skills. So bringing it back to the original question that uh, sort of it depends on which uh, game companies you're looking at and which roles you're looking at. Uh, if you want to do a single demo reel that shows all of your audio skills all the way from if you're a composer, sound designer, you know, implementer kind of thing and a lot of the students in, the, in our school do all three of those together. But if you're looking to really refine it, then you might split out a second or third reel that's just focusing on your music or just focusing on sound design. So we're talking a little bit about a lot of technical roles. Do you think there's much place for people who aren't very good with technology? Or do you think that being working in game audio, you've got to be down with the tech? There's definitely a role for people that don't want to be technical in game audio. And, you know, especially like if you're a composer, you could definitely just be a composer and just compose for video games, but never actually really play a video game or never really understand how to use WISE. That's definitely possible. Like, I mean, that's say like, you know, when you license stuff like I did for, uh, you know, with John Hopkins is that he didn't he didn't have to play the game at all uh and but his music was used really effectively in the game so there's definitely roles like that um but i would say that if you want to have a full-time job in game audio that being more technical will help you if you're more technical it's more likely that the studio will want to keep you so yeah. uh, yeah, because the thing is that if you only know how to do, um, you know, sort of regular audio stuff, really, you're just talking about that you're in a much larger pool, like a much larger talent pool. And to compete within that talent pool can be really difficult. So um, basically, the amount of, you know, like the sort of the amount of money that you can get for composing from a top end video game versus almost like a top end, like there's still a bit of disparity, but a top end film, they're pretty comparable. So film and games are, you know, right up until like, say that 1% level, like that Hollywood blockbuster level is they're almost the same. And people go back and forth between the two. Like you have Michael Giacchino, he went like, you know, from, from gaming into like film and you can have, uh, you know, there's like, uh, well, obviously you have like Paul McCartney going the other way. Yeah. <laughs> so really, if if you want to be a composer, then, you know, these days and just a composer, then I would say that I would be throwing you into the pool along with Paul McCartney. Like, so if you're willing to <laughs> like compete in that pool, that's fine. But if you really want to, uh, to, um, sort of narrow things down and to be more stable in the industry, then being technical is a good thing. It's it's basically to me, the way I express it for my students is that it's just like, it's just like learning another language. And uh, for a lot of people, they start out the language and they're like, oh, I'm not sure if I kind of get this and stuff. But once you start speaking it, and it's sort of a way to talk in a sense, sort of to the computer, 
then you'll find that the conversations that you can have are pretty interesting. Uh, and they just add to the depth of what you can do as an artist within game audio. So for me, I don't think that, um, there's a stigmatism for, uh, the technical side of things where people think like, Oh, I need to be a programmer to be technical. And that is not the case at all. It's the same thing. The way that I see it is it's very similar to like traveling to another country. It's just like, okay, if I'm going to travel to Mexico, it's good for me to bring a phrase book and understand sort of some of the responses I might get. To me, that's the same thing as learning a little bit about implementation and maybe even learning a little bit about a programming language when working in game audio. But the thing that you don't need to do is that you don't need to be 100% fluent. It's like, I do not need to be a C++ plus like genius programmer to do game audio. That's the same thing as like, I don't need to be fully fluent in like, you know, like Mexican, like Spanish to travel in Mexico. It's simply not the case. I mean, you'll have definitely a different uh, sort of uh, quality of experience, right? But it's definitely not necessary. And the other thing as well that I find that's sort of unfortunate is that, uh, I mean, it's a, it's somewhat of a personality type and that one of the things that I'm really hoping to uh, work on with game audio is is really uh, like with teaching it is to break down that boundary because I don't think that it's such a huge thing and I think that um, it'll just allow for more diverse uh, art to happen within the field of game audio if we kind of remove that as this like oh you need to do like you know four years of programming before you need before you can do any game audio it's like that is really not true and uh, it's okay to just sort of pick and choose the little bits and pieces that you want to learn from the technical side, but uh, you you do not need to be a, a full fledged like coder to to get into game audio. And uh, yeah, I think that there's a real spectrum. I think that uh, programming is something that we should really not be afraid of, and code is not something to be afraid of either. And it does not require you know like years and years before you get to the fun stuff. You can do the fun stuff at the beginning and just sort of weave in a little bit of code from time to time, and you know there and code is always changing as well too. So it's uh, I, I really try and break that distinction down so that uh, there's there's less of a uh, it feels like this weird sort of initial hurdle. So I would say that if you uh, don't like to do code or if you don't think that it's helpful for you, that's totally fine and you can totally find a place in game audio. But if you really want to stick around in game audio, it's kind of like looking over the horizon once you learn a little bit of code and you can just simply see further. It is really exciting. So yes, come over here, <laughs> like, <laughs> learn code. It's it's actually pretty fun. It's It really is like learning Italian or Spanish or whatever it is. It's, it's exactly the same thing. It's just the language of machines. Yeah, I teach seven to 11 year olds basic like programming and <clears> if they can do it, you can do it. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And like learning scratch is awesome because you just take those little functional blocks or, you know, colors and stuff. And the thing that's I don't know if you have this with your students, but the thing that's really interesting is that if when you have some students that at the beginning, like I've had this with university students, but if you have students at the beginning where they're looking at it, and they're kind of like, because uh, all they're doing is that they're saying, like, I don't quite understand it. And usually, like, sort of there's a bit of fear and worry with not understanding something. They, I had a, this guy that was a sculptor, and he started out, and he's like, I don't like computers. And I was like, <laughs> okay, <laughs> this is going to be tricky. But, you know, I showed him a few things with, with – it was a pure data course, and I showed him a few things. And then 
he what he did was amazing. He basically just took his intensity that he applied to like you know working with three D materials, and then he just like like threw all of that into pure data, and he created this really amazing thing out of it that was just like wow, like because he he just learned everything that he needed to know for what he wanted to to create. So he he made this very interesting like three-dimensional like you know sort of a uh, sculpture, like virtual sculpture that you could interact with and then he invited his friends over and they all hung out and you know just sat on, with this projector th- device that he had sort of put together and they just they just sat there and watched it. So sometimes it's it's figuring out how to sort of um not necessarily break down boundaries to me. I think it's it's not necessarily breaking to me. It's a, it's more of a more permeable thing. It's kind of like you you just want to sort of entice people with like, hey, you know, it's like leading someone in a in a good way, where you just sort of go a little bit along the path, and then you the other person's like, oh, you know, that's a lot of work. I'm not sure if I can do it. And you're just like, oh no, but just just over here, you can see this. And they're like, oh, okay, all right. They scramble up a little bit, and they're like, oh wow, this is cool. So yeah, as a teacher, I find that it's neat when people really, they're like, this is cool. And then they run way ahead of you, <laughs> you know? So for me, I, I'm, that's a, a huge part of the reason why I love teaching is because like I'm continuously surprised and yeah, just like inspired by the, the people that I'm, I'm, uh, you know, teaching to, and then also learning from. Awesome. Um, how do you think your teaching material has changed over the years and what advances do you see happening in the world of game audio? Yeah, well, game audio, quite frankly, has changed in a huge way over the past couple of years, simply for the change of making the tools uh, free for indies and available, like more available for educators. It's a huge, huge win that just happened recently. I uh, remember being at, uh, I guess it was GDC, Ooh, I think it was the year before last and when the, those announcements were made and it was just like, oh my goodness, this is just so much easier now. Now I don't have to, you know, it's just like, well, you can learn wise, but then if you use it in your own independent game, it's going to be this hundreds or thousands or whatever of dollars. Whereas now for people that are just starting out, the barrier to entry is so much lower. When I first started teaching, I, I taught at a, uh, a private post-secondary school in 2001. So I started teaching like 15 years ago at this point. When I started teaching game audio, um, they were teaching Flash. And I was just like, no, that's not going to do it. So what I did is I actually created my own uh, game audio engine using pure data. Because we had like no access to Wise, Wise wasn't even around at that point. Uh, the sort of the there was like the Miles Sound Engine was sort of around, but then uh, FMOD was around in a different form, uh, just as a as an engine basically. There's no tool a sort of front end for it at that point. But uh, when starting out in 2001, I created like a game audio engine and. So what I did was initially I did game capture and then I uh, sort of striped the game capture of like, okay, six frames in, there's like, you know, whatever, there's a footstep. So then I'm going to put down MIDI note 60 and then within my engine, it would send out MIDI note 60 when it hit that. So then it would allow you to trigger the samples and synthesis uh, like, you know, interactively. Well, not interactively, but it would trigger it in real time. So, you know, every time that footstep happened, every time you played that certain game sequence, then it could be a different sound, right? So uh, we did game capture, and then it would 
trigger game events as they watch the game. And uh, yeah, it was, it was pretty fun. And then eventually I figured out a way of making the source engine. So for Half-Life 2, spit out uh, audio, um, like basically the same stuff. So you could play the game and then over open sound control, it would send out events. And then in the pure data side, then you could create your sound design. So that was pretty cool to be able to teach students with a real working game. And that's what I was working with a lot at uh, the Vancouver Film School. Um, and then around that time, that's when WISE became sort of more like it was just getting started. And I asked them, I had to like ask for a special permission at that point to allow uh, you know, the film school to set up a wise, uh, a set of, you know, like a wise lab, like at the school. So I talked to audio kinetic, we figured out all this stuff because basically, uh, you would have to be a developer to have access to these tools. So you'd have to actually be like, you know, a, like in a sense, a licensed video game developer because they didn't really differentiate uh, their tools from the ones that were available for Xbox or the ones that were available for PC. So, uh, and there are certain rules with the publisher, or I guess you'd say the, uh, whatever the game, you know, whatever Microsoft and stuff like that, that were a higher level that they had certain licensing constraints. So anyways, we got wise sort of, you know, around 2006 or something like that. And that was cool. And, uh, yeah, using the, uh, cube open source game uh, was the way that we worked on a lot of, uh, game audio at that point. So really, yeah, looking at those different phases, like 2001, <laughs> I had to do everything kind of from scratch. And then sort of the middle ground was wise, but, you know, we couldn't uh, necessarily say like, oh, hey, if you work on your own game, then you can use this in your own titles. And then now it's just, it's wide open. So for me, it's even better teaching game audio because I, you know, people that finish the course, they could potentially make a, their own game using wise uh, and unity, like just on their own. So the, uh, the power of the tools that are available to us are, it's just, it's, it's huge. And it's, and it's really exciting to be around during that transition. So, um, yeah, the, uh, my, my own course materials basically just sort of followed that, uh, transition from where I had to sort of create everything from, from scratch. Whereas now, we're looking at sort of generative music systems that I've added to the pure data course um, and all sorts of other sort of yeah, like generative, uh, like uh, synthesis sound design kind of stuff uh, as well on the, on the PD side, too, that are sort of looking at what might be coming around the corner for uh, for game audio uh, for people that are really interested in, in sort of looking at that more technical side of things. So, yeah. And then just, yeah, like really digging in on the creative aspects, too, because like now that there's, you know, so many games out there, you even like the independent stuff, like the the quality level was just going up and up. So it's also figuring out how to uh, really push and help people uh, increase their skills uh, on the creative side as well. So I think that that's very important to consider that. It's not just the technical side, it's also the creative side that needs to grow in response to the sort of rising tide of quality in the industry too. Yeah, definitely. Um, finally, because we've kept you a while now, um, <laughs> no have you got any recent success stories from graduates of your School of Video Game Audio that you'd like to share with us? <laughs> yeah, um, 
Well, my one of my favorite ones is from Emily Mayo. She completed the course back in the summer. Um, and the thing with doing education is that it's not necessarily that somebody takes the course and just because of the course, you know, they find a job and this and that. But I mean, like within, uh, I think, a month or so of completing the course, uh, she was able to find a job. And the neat thing was, is that she was working in a service job that she really didn't like. So she was just like, okay, I'm doing the game audio thing. So I think what she did is she took uh, courses at her local college. Uh, she researched a lot online. She was, you know, playing games. And then she took the course and then just was super focused about like finding work. She's just like, I don't want to continue in my current line of work. I want to like really pursue my dream. And uh, yeah, she was able to do it. And so she's working on stuff right now. And it's neat to see sort of, uh, you know, view student tweets from time to time. And it sounds like she's really happy there. And she's finding that like, yeah, with doing you know, music <laughs> that like sort of daily that she's finding that her, uh, her own musicianship and composing and mastering skills and all those related skills are, are really increasing, uh, you know, like just because of her job and it's neat to see people really succeed where they had an idea of what they wanted to do. And then they've really gone out and done it. I mean, I, there's a lot of people, um, there's, uh, Stephen Green that's working on, um, there's a game called Journey that was pretty popular, and so he's yeah. working. Uh, he's working with one of the designers from Journey, and so he's like the sound designer for a game called Abzu, and uh, it's sort of a similar visual style. And uh, the company is called Giant Squid, and so he's he's very happy to be working there. He just put out a uh, an article about uh, the cool sound design stuff that he's working on in the game. And uh, so, yeah, he's another uh, big student success. Um, there's uh, Paul MacArthur, who was working at uh, Savalas, which was the, it still is, it's the largest uh, audio post facility in Scotland. And then after taking the course, he transitioned to working um, on Fable. So he's working at uh, Microsoft, like at Microsoft, I guess it's um, uh, Lionhead Studios in London. That's the one. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So there's people that they, it's kind of like, I don't necessarily, it's, it's, it's people that have taken the course and then have gone on to great things. So it's just, it's really like, it's, uh, as an educator, it's just really neat to see people succeed that, uh, where they've gone from like, okay, there's this thing I want to do. And then they're just super focused on it. And then they just, they make it happen. And it's neat to, to be a part of that in some small way. Awesome. Well, all that's left is to thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule to talk to us. And I wish you well for the future. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks a bunch. And uh, yeah, I would uh, say that uh, <clears throat> there's always more to learn and, you know, be engaged in the community. And uh, I don't know, game audio is fun. So make sure come join us. And if you're already here, then, you know, yeah, keep having a great time. And uh, I don't know, I, I really enjoy being part of the community. So I'm always, uh, yeah, I'm very thankful for, uh, you know, for anybody that's, uh, that's contributing to the community. So yeah, thanks a bunch.